0: This is the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein.
1: Good afternoon everybody. This has been a, a it's a tough day for all of us. It's it's been that way every September 11th since that horrific terrorist attack on on our nation 20 years ago. The uh, the vows so many people made on that day the one to never forget it 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 still means something to to many of us and it, and i think it always will and so each year we we remember the nearly 3000 men and women killed in the attacks at the the world trade center site at, at the pentagon uh, on united airlines flight 93 in pennsylvania uh that was just just one of many immeasurable acts of of heroism and patriotism that day and and we listen to the ringing of the bell the reading of the names uh, after all these years we we see so many familiar faces family members who were yanked from anonymity and now grown accustomed to to seeing each other once a year and and, and all of us as a, as a nation we we join them in their grief and and uh, as was our our pledge as americans we will never forget the personal sacrifices that that were made that day. Uh, I will be joined today by two men who were front and center on September 11th, 2001 as as among the state of New Jersey's most influential leaders of the day. Uh, 20 years ago, Bob Torricelli was in Washington. He was the senior United States Senator from New Jersey, and Donald DiFrancesco was the governor of New Jersey. And and like all of us, uh, they both began their day, you know, Almost a, un, under normal circumstances, uh, never imagining that they were going to have a, a front row seat to uh, to one of the most significant events uh, our nation ever experienced. So, so I appreciate them joining me today, Senator Torricelli, will be on at four twenty, Governor francesco at four thirty five. I, I promise you won't want to miss a word of what they have to say about their recollections of September eleventh, and and many of us have our own stories of nine eleven. Uh, some who were eyewitnesses to history. Some, like me, just briefly played a, a, a small role in the, the annual observances of this date. Now, my, my own story was much like, like many people across the country. I was, I was in my office in New Jersey. I heard of the attack. I spent the rest of the day glued to the news. And, and when you lived in New Jersey, you were in New York, uh, everybody knew of somebody who perished on 9-11. I, I didn't lose any family. I didn't lose any close friends. But, but like everyone else, I knew people who died, and I, I knew people uh, who, who didn't come home that day. And, and, and like everyone else, I kept an eye on, on those that I knew worked in lower Manhattan. And I remember, we'll, we'll never forget it, feeling this, this sense of extraordinary relief every time I found out that, that, that each one of them was safe. And my experiences at the World Trade Center didn't come until almost nine years later when I, I joined the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey and and it was there that I came to know men and women who were were some of the most authentic heroes I've ever met. And and these were people who stepped up in, in the most unimaginable circumstances, people who who lived through horrors of the day, people who saved the lives of their coworkers. I knew a man at the Port Authority who worked to evacuate his co-workers from offices on the 69th floor of the North Tower. I mean, one of them was a, a quadriplegic in a power wheelchair. And, and this man and others lifted their colleague from his wheelchair. They put him in an emergency evacuation chair. Uh, and and they carried him down a stairway, 69 floors, and they saved his life. And and there, there were there were lots of stories like that, tales of... Of heroism and bravery, and ordinary people putting their lives ahead of their own. Uh, part of my time at the Port Authority was spent rebuilding the World Trade Center. It was a, it's a symbol of the resiliency of our nation, and and one of my job was was to be involved in the planning of the, the annual 9/11 memorial ceremony, and and there was there was nothing heroic about that being. Uh, part of it for for four years. It was it was a tremendous honor. It was just a, a small way of giving back. Uh, but those four years, those four nine eleven ceremonies, allowed me to witness firsthand the faces and the the voices of the families of the victims and and survivors. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. I'm talking about nine eleven on the New Jersey Globe Power Hours, part of Talk Radio seventy seven WABC's. 48-hour coverage of the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center, 20 years ago, and on September 11, 2011, the 10th anniversary, uh, and there was there was a lot going on. President Obama, former President Bush, were there. It was it was the first day that the 9/11 memorial was was open to the public. There were a lot of people clamoring for for good seats, for place in proximity to those in power. But when that when that first bell rang, when the politics was over and and this ceremony, it was the second one that I had attended, uh, when this ceremony grew astonishingly solemn, uh, as it should be, uh, the focus was appropriately shifted to the families who were there, uh, not to be seen but to remember. Uh, and it was it was that day, September 11, 2011, I, I met someone who would profoundly impact me. Uh, I was introduced to the family of a Port Authority police officer who died on 9-11. Specifically, I met a 9-year-old child whose father was killed, a 9-year-old child paying tribute to the 10th anniversary of the death of his father. And and this was a very special child, a very special person who would never known their father. Uh, Yet yet this person, such a very special person, had... Had such dignity and grace, even even as a, a nine year old, and and was such an incredible sense of pride for his father and what he did that it just it stuck with me and it will stick with me forever. And, and I mean, you you see, there's 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 many uh, of that day that, that that I saw the brave Port Authority police officer uh, who was he wasn't at the World Trade Center. He was on the other side of the Hudson River. He was working at the PATH station in Jersey City. And when the first plane flew, flew into the North Tower, this this police officer left the safety of New Jersey and and drove to the World Trade Center and and like like many first responders, this man ran into a burning building. He sacrificed his life in an attempt to save others. This this was his job this was his sworn responsibility and and the lack of even the slightest hesitation to run into a burning building i mean it might be the most admirable thing i've ever heard and and so the the faces of these families that i met 10 years later children growing up without their fathers w- wives without their husbands mothers and fathers without their sons uh, these faces are in uh, indelibly etched in, in my mind. And and I, can't help but believe that these families, the families of the victims of 9-11, each and every one of them are, are heroes too. Uh, two New Jersey leaders who had front row seats for what happened on 9-11 will be joining me soon. Bob Torricelli, former U.S. Senator, former New Jersey governor, Don DiFrancesco. Uh, this is David Wildstein. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour and, and at the Port Authority, uh, 37 members of the Port Authority Police Department died on 9-11. I mean, never in the history of this country have so many officers of a single police department lost their lives on the same day. I mean, it took the Port Authority Police just minutes to launch the deployment of their officers uh, from other facilities, from airports and bridges and tunnels and trains uh, to the World Trade Center. Uh, I mean, during my time at at the port, I got to know... Several police officers who were part of the rescue and recovery operation that, that, thank God, survived. And each one of them deserve our respect and and admiration. One of the people I got to know was Paul Nunziato. He was the president of the Port Authority Police PBA. Uh, As a union leader, he was deeply devoted to his pledge to never forget the, the men and women of his department that were killed in the line of duty on nine eleven and Nunziato pledged to forever honor the police officers who died i 've seen a lot of advocates over the years, and nobody more fervent than paul nunziato uh, he was He was committed not just to honoring those who who perished but but also those who suffered long term health issues as a, as a result of their exposure to the World Trade Center site and here's what struck me most about Paul Nunziato and, and about the union's vice president, Mike DeFilippis, and the entire team. It was, it was their never-ending commitment to the families of those 37 police officers. And I, I watched this up close for four years. Paul Nunziato was there for those families. He went to family events, to Little League games. He, he made sure that the children of his fallen police officers had Christmas presents. And Nunziato never wavered from his commitment to the members of his police department, and to their families. Now, Paul Nunziato is getting ready to retire after 34 years as a police officer. I'd, I'd like to pay tribute to him and his enduring commitment to never forgetting what happened on September 11th, 2001, and the the extraordinary acts of bravery and heroism by his, his fellow po- police officers. Paul Nunziato is probably one of the best men I know, and law enforcement was fortunate to have him uh, have him there uh, I'll be right back to speak with former United States Senator Bob Torricelli about his rec- recollections of 9-11 so please don't miss that and coming up at 435 I'll speak with Don DeFrancesco who was the governor of New Jersey 20 years ago today this is David Wildstein I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe and I'm talking about 9-11 on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour as part of WABC's 48-hour coverage of the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center 20 years
2: ago. When it comes to autism, finding the right words can be tough. Finding community in these challenging times doesn't have to be. Join us, even virtually, to move together towards a kinder world for the millions of people on the autism spectrum. Find out how at speaks.org slash together.
0: The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And while 2020 is over, the impact is not. I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for Mental Health to Change Lives.
3: Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211.
0: NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need. It's for everyone, veterans, seniors, even children.
3: I'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel.
0: And it's not a train, it's help. It's NJ211. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. If you need help, go to nj211.org or dial 211.
2: When it comes to autism, finding the right words can be tough. Finding community in these challenging times doesn't have to be. Join us, even virtually, to move together towards a kinder world. For the millions of people on the autism spectrum. Find out how at autismspeaks.org slash together.
0: A staff writer in Flushing, New York is needed full-time by the Roman Catholic Church. A bachelor's degree in religion or related is required. Research on religious topics, write articles and columns, attend the meeting, etc., Apply to the Catholic Peace Times Weekly Incorporated at 14527 33rd Avenue, Flushing, New York, 11354. Again, apply to the Catholic Peace Times Weekly Incorporated at 14527 33rd Avenue, Flushing, New York, 11354. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein.
1: So 20 years ago today, Bob Torricelli was the senior United States senator from New Jersey, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, welcome.
2: I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank
1: you for coming on. Senator, where were you when you, you first heard that a plane flew into the World Trade Center?
2: I, in those days, I had a small condo on the top floor of a building of looking upon the Capitol. It's just down off the hill probably the closest residential building to Capitol Hill. And I was still in my apartment that morning. And my, uh, actually John Corzine who was then my the junior center from New Jersey called me. And he said, did you hear just what happened? You better turn on the television. Um, and that's how my day began. And did you, and at what point did, did you realize
1: that this was, this was more than just a plane going into the trade center?
2: Actually, almost immediately. The, the, uh, Congress was still open. Um, my former wife was working at the Democratic National Committee, and my staff had already come to work. And uh, the minute I saw that picture, and actually, my recollection is the Today Show was saying that a small plane was, had hit the World Trade Center as if it had been an accident. And the minute I saw that picture, I thought, that's, that's no accident. That's a terrorist attack. I called my office, and I said, get everybody out. And I called my former wife, the DNC. She said, the guards are saying it's fine. And I said, no, it's not. Start walking away from the Capitol as fast as you can. Um, uh, at that point, I had a balcony on my uh, condo, and I went out there, and I saw these two Army helicopters land, and they took the House and Senate leadership away from the Capitol. So a select few got information very fast. The rest of the Congress did not. Um, they not. Capitol was not fully put on alert and not evacuated for a period of time, but they got Senators Daschle and Lott, and they got the Speaker out of there immediately.
1: And you later it became obviously much bigger the, the, the Pentagon, and then then what what happened in Shanksville. I actually
2: heard that I could hear from my apartment the Pentagon, the explosion at the Pentagon, and shortly thereafter heard fighter planes over overhead. So yeah, it was it was unfolding before my eyes. I actually, because we were told, um, uh, the Capitol Police were telling us that there were still an unaccounted for a plane, which of course is the plane we now know crashed in Pennsylvania, and the the, uh, the authorities had a pretty good idea that plane was probably headed for either the White House or the Capitol. So uh, I was sitting there after I heard the Pentagon explosion, half expecting another plane to appear and uh, it hit the Capitol. And had it not been for those extraordinarily, in my mind, under heralded, incredible American heroes who took that plane down, the United States would not have a Capitol building today in my judgment. You
1: had to be worried about your own mortality at that moment.
2: You know, in retrospect, it didn't occur to me that had that plane come to hit the Capitol, it may not have hit the Capitol. It could have come a quarter of miles short and hit where I was standing. Um, I, I think more significantly is, I, as I was thinking about that day, most events in history unfold rather slowly, and you don't understand the significance of them for a period of time. World War I, the country kind of slipped into, the Depression, the Cold War evolved over time. Really only the attack on Pearl Harbor and 9-11 did you know from that moment uh, something significant had happened and the future wasn't going to be the same as the past. The, they were singular events in that dimension.
1: And I'm speaking with former U.S. Senator Bob Torricelli. S- Senator, I mean, I'll read to you what, what you said that day. You said it. it is not an overstatement to declare that this was an act of war against the United States. And it is insufficient that those responsible are simply apprehended uh, you know as you as you have a chance now twenty years later to look on that has has the United States adequately fulfilled that that commitment that you made?
2: you know David, I think about it so much, and I talked to some of the um, families who had lost loved ones in the last couple of days who've called and talked to me about those days. I have mixed feelings about it i I think as usual, the United States military responded brilliantly in uh, overtaking the Taliban and Al Qaeda. It was an extraordinary response of which we should all be enormously proud. Obviously, the first responders, uh, the sacrifices of them was was a whole another dimension of national sacrifice and, and achievement. But I don't, frankly, feel good about everything in retrospect. The nation did rally, as we're, we're now heralding, but not quite as much as we now try to remember. It There was a national response, but there was some sense of regionalism in the country as well. Everybody voted for the relief, but I can't tell you that within the Congress there weren't elements that thought it was a national tragedy but needed more of a regional response. And I was disappointed at that. History will never record that because we'll now remember that the nation – responded in unison. It didn't necessarily. Um, And while I'm very proud of what we did in Afghanistan uh, and all of us saying this will never happen again and we will never forget, um, should we have pulled everybody out of Afghanistan? Uh, The Taliban is back. Al-Qaeda very well probably will be back. Uh, Was it not worth keeping 2,500 soldiers there on station, not in combat, to bolster the Afghan government so that Afghanistan never becomes a base against the United States or Western Europe again. Not sure that was the right thing to do. Um, And here we are 20 years later. We remember all the things we did right and the heroism and the extraordinary sacrifices. So this many years later, a $30 billion American intelligence community uh, failed to detect that there was going to be attack upon the United States with this vast intelligence and military and law enforcement network. Not a single person was fired. No one was held accountable. Uh, We changed some things, as we should have. Um, I feel good about how we responded to 9-11. I cannot feel good about the days leading up to it, that uh, the intelligence wasn't read better, that our capabilities weren't better used. The fact is... um, we should have known.
1: And Senator, you were—my you, recollection is—you were among the the very first, if if not the first, to call for a, a board of inquiry into intelligence failures that that led to those attacks. Or you, are you twenty years later? Or you, do you, do you still worry that that those same intelligence failures could happen again?
2: I worry anytime something happens historically, and there's not accountability for it. Uh, Actually, interestingly, I didn't know that you or anyone knew that because it was inside the Democratic caucus after 9-11. And uh, I and uh, I think Senator Lieberman and Senator Kerry had both called for there to be an inquiry about how this enormous military intelligence failure could have happened. And the Bush administration's response is that we were too busy – we're too busy fighting a war. We can't be looking at an inquiry. I, by chance, am a collector of antique books, and one of the books that I had bought recently was the inquiry into um, the causes of the Civil War. And I had already possessed the inquiry into the causes of Pearl Harbor. Um, We did an inquiry on Pearl Harbor while we were losing the war, uh, and we had immediately done one of the causes of the Civil War. And the Bush administration was claiming they didn't have time after 9-11 to find out how this happened. Well, their argument immediately collapsed, uh, and, of course, the nine eleven Commission was formed. Um, uh, but it was a frustration, this, the, the fact that there were those who wanted to simply go on and that there would not have been some minimum accountability, not for revenge sake, uh, not for political sakes, but unless you learn what happened and how this enormous intelligence community could have failed to have detected this attack – you're almost certainly inviting for it to happen again.
1: And I'm speaking with with Bob Torricelli, former U.S. Senator, was a U.S. Senator on 9-11. And the, recently, President Biden ordered a, a declassification of all the 9-11 documents, those not related to a national security threat. I mean, what do, what do you think those documents might show?
2: I'd actually be surprised if they showed more. Of course, the the pressure to do so is... The suspicion of a larger Saudi role in the nine eleven attacks um, I would be extremely surprised if that proved to be the case, nevertheless, the families want to know and they have a right to know, and the document should be declassified and you
1: were i mean as 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 I recall it i mean you were you were a fervent advocate for the families you know many of whom lived in in New Jersey. Uh, they came to see you and 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 asked you to to, to become involved it, Does it seem a little remarkable that twenty years later Congress is still debating whether to make the victim 's compensation fund permanent
2: well that in itself is a disappointment but uh, but i I have to say that the in the twenty years I spent in the United States congress they 're working with those families and um uh, getting the compensation relief, I consider one of the singular moments of my own life. The um, At the time, Senator Moynihan of New York had retired, and Senator Schumer was new to the Congress. So New York did not have a representative, nor did Connecticut on the Senate Finance Committee. Um, I was the only one. So a great deal of that fell on me, not simply the compensation for the victims, but just as significantly the liberty bonds to rebuild of uh, Lower Manhattan, uh, which is why I have some recollection of where I had resistance from all those who would now claim that they were in solidarity with New York and New Jersey. They they were not all right. Um, The most significant thing for the families was not only getting them the relief where I think there was broad support, but it was uh, making sure that relief was not heavily taxed uh, to give people money to support their families and educate their children. And then have it 40 uh, percent of it disappear in taxation was outrageous, and I and having exempted much of it from taxation, I consider something I'm enormously proud of
1: and justifiably so. Senator Bob Torricelli, thank you for joining me today. On, Thanks on for having me, a very me, solemn day. And, and I will be right back with former New Jersey Governor Don DeFrancesco okay. to talk about his experiences. This is David Wildstein. I'm talking about 9-11 on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour as part of WABC's
0: uh, 48-hour tribute to the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center. So I'll be right back. The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And while 2020 is over, the impact is not. I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for mental health to change lives.
3: Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211.
0: NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need it's for everyone veterans seniors even children
3: i'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel
0: and it's not a train it's help it's nj211 remember it's okay not to feel okay if you need help go to nj211.org or dial 211
4: old school, classic, punk, indie, 80s, 90s, whatever. If it's got passion and a backbeat, I want to hear it. And I want to know more about the artists who create it. That's why I read Rock and Roll Globe. Rockandrollglobe.com features the sharpest takes about what's good and what's um, not so good in music. They call it real writing about real music. It's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just crisp, surprising insight into music of all kinds, interviews with performers, concise reviews of hot new records, a look back at that great album that changed everything. It's all on rockandrollglobe.com. Check out Rock and Roll Globe. That's rockandrollglobe.com. I
3: could
0: this is the new jersey globe power hour on talk radio 77 wabc here's the globe's editor-in-chief david wildstein
1: welcome back everybody uh we're having some technical issues we're, we're trying to get governor de on the line but in the in the meantime i'd like to introduce everybody to joey fox he is a uh, a new New Jersey Globe reporter. Uh, he started with us last month, quickly becoming a, a rising star. Joey, welcome to what I hope will be your first of many appearances on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour.
5: Thank you. It's uh, it's good to be here. Well,
1: thanks for coming on. And and look, I I I do have to say, you're I mean, you're 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 a new reporter. You 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 weren't very old when when nine eleven happened. Uh, you don't really. I, I guess you don't really remember what was life was like before nine eleven.
5: No, yeah, I was I was a little over two years old uh, when it happened. So yeah, my pretty much my entire existence that I can at least remember has been in a post nine eleven world.
1: So you grew up in New York City post nine eleven. What did what did what did that mean growing up uh, at a time where you 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 heard about what happened at the World Trade Center at, your, at the earliest days? Well,
5: I mean, I guess. I guess the story that I'll tell is from a little bit earlier than that, which is that when 9-11 actually happened, I was not living in New York. My family was living in London, and we already knew that we wanted to move back to the United States, um, but we weren't really sure where. We had lived in New York when I was born, but then we had moved, and then 11 happened, and and, um, my parents were actually going to visit um, America, but they had to cancel that trip because of 9-11, but they realized, oh, wow, we – we cannot be away from, from New York right now. It is not the time for us to be living in, in America anywhere but New York. So, really soon after 9 11, we moved back. And that is, that, that's in my home sense. So, yeah, it's definitely been, you know, it's always been part of, part of my New York existence is, is having that knowledge. Is, you know, um, a classmate of mine in elementary school, his dad died. You know, always little things like that. And it never feels weird because you don't know what to compare it to. Um, But that's always been how it how it is.
1: And we you know, we we look at 9-11 and we we, we, you and I have discussed the the politics of emergencies, the the politics of a crisis situation and and what that means uh, in political campaigns. I mean, I I think back, you know, 2000, George Bush, Got beaten fairly badly in New Jersey. By the end of two thousand one, his approvals in New Jersey, in blue New Jersey, were ninety, ninety percent. Yet, yet he had, he had no coattails at all. I mean, there were you know th- that same year, a Democrat won the governorship. Democrats flipped both houses of the legislature, and and we, you know, we we think about Sandy, and and right now we're we're on the verge of a gubernatorial election in New Jersey. Phil Murphy uh, is. Uh, you know, has been dealing with with COVID for a year and a half, and dealing with that crisis. We we just had a weather event with with flooding. What is what is the impact on these emergencies on on political campaigns and on how people vote?
5: I mean, it's a complicated answer. You know, as the 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 whole litany that you just gave kind of demonstrates. You know, each of those. Each of those events had had really different effects where, you know, Democrats still flipped things to New Jersey in 2001. But then in um, 2012, in the aftermath of Sandy, you know, people like Barack Obama suddenly had all kinds of extra, um, extra ranks in places like New Jersey that was attributed to their disaster relief. So, you know, it's, it's really tough. to, And it's especially, you know, thinking about COVID specifically now. Um, people have compared it to 9-11. You know, there's been a comparison going around where, okay, now, you know, in these terrible days, in the especially terrible days of COVID, we've had a 9-11 every two days or comparisons like that, which, you know, you can debate whether those are really in good taste or not, but we've never really dealt with a crisis of quite this consistent scale, something that just keeps on going and going and going. And, you know, that's, we don't know how to deal with it. Emotionally, we don't know how to deal with all this loss, but we also don't really know how to deal with it politically. We don't know how to judge leaders for the, their handling of these events that just will not stop coming, will not stop causing crises. So that's an answer that doesn't really contain an answer. But um, yeah, it's hard. Welcome to, to New know Jersey exactly, politics, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: But you know we 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 look at we look at Governor Murphy and and you know New Jersey you know as as you know as as people have heard me talk about uh as democratic as the state is it hasn't reelected a democratic governor in 44 years Phil Murphy is it fair to say that Phil Murphy's uh political future is is a is a referendum on his leadership during COVID
5: I think to some extent yes I mean, it's one of those counterfactuals where you can never really know what kind of gubernatorial election we'd be looking at if it weren't for the reality of COVID. You know, at this point, nearly half of Governor Murphy's term has been dealing with COVID. So the idea of a reality where that isn't the case is just such a different reality anyways. But, yeah, I mean, I think that in this time where people have tended to rely on people in power and, you know, Governor Murphy has done lots of things to make himself visible and apparent in the middle of, of this crisis. And now he appears to be in pretty good shape for reelection. So, yeah, I think that there there could definitely be a connection there.
1: So these 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 crises uh, and I'm speaking with Joey Fox, a political reporter of the New Jersey with the New Jersey Globe. These crises seem to to put leaders like Phil Murphy on a on a national stage. I mean, we we, we saw just, you know, just since last week with uh, with the flooding. Uh, and the emergency created around Tropical Storm Ida, that that Phil Murphy was on national television showing, you know, talking about what the response is. Is there it's got to be hard for for Jack Cittarelli to compete with uh, uh, with those kinds of opportunities for an incumbent?
5: Yeah, definitely. And I think that our natural instinct when there is some kind of tragedy is to. Um, trust the people already in charge and trust those people when they say not to politicize it, which is a completely fair thing to say, you know, and we don't want to make things like 9-11 or things like COVID into political battles, although a little late for that. We've kind of had a lot about both of them. But yeah, that does make it difficult for anybody who is not in power to make a compelling argument for themselves without directly making some kind of tragedy that the incumbent is dealing with into a directly political fight.
1: And it seems it seems like like it was it was immediately political. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, but but you know, New, New Jersey, New Jersey had disaster declarations. There were states of emergencies. You know, you know, what happened? Joe Joe Biden came to New Jersey to tour flooding. He was standing next to Phil Murphy, next to Tom Malinowski, next to uh, next to next to Cory Booker. uh national audience for Phil Murphy and, 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 and I should point out New Jersey can start voting Uh, the ballots are due out one week from today. So what does that mean?
5: I mean, it means that when people are getting their ballots, they're going to have these images in mind. Um, who knows how many people are going to take advantage of early voting, you know, since this is such a, a new thing in New Jersey, it's hard to really game out what kind of effect that will have. But yeah, I mean, uh, um, the fact that we've got this disaster happening now and um, voting happening now is sort of a combination of things that we really haven't seen um, in a while. It, it harkens back a little bit to Sandy when when Sandy hit and the 2012 election were so were so intertwined. Um, yeah. No, I mean, that
1: was I mean, that, that was at a point I remember there were there were a lot of Republicans. Across the country, you know, angry at a at a Republican governor in New Jersey who, who had his arm around the president of the United States, who was in a close reelection race. race. Uh, I mean, these these images they're they're very important, aren't they?
5: Yeah, and and there's sort of another interesting counterfactual in you know President Biden is a Democrat, Governor Murphy is a Democrat, and a pretty strong majority. of The people who represent the really devastated areas from Ida in this case. Or Democrats, um, So, you know, you have these you have these meetups in Hillsborough or in Manville that are, are pretty um, one party sided regardless. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting uh, counterfactual to imagine what would happen in a case where it was more like 2012 with Christie and Obama and to think about what kind of image that might show uh, in that case.
1: And I'm speaking with New Jersey Globe political reporter Joey Fox. Something else I noticed uh, recently: a Monmouth University poll, and and it listed listed terrorism still is a is a is a major concern to New Jersey voters. But what I thought was interesting was that New Jerseyans less afraid today of foreign terrorism as as they they were. 20 years ago, uh, after the attack at, at the World Trade Center, today more interested in or more concerned in in domestic terrorism, the threat of domestic terrorism. Do you do you see that as being an issue, uh, uh, whether it, whether it's in the 2021 campaign or or in the 2022 midterms, when New Jersey is going to have a a bunch of hotly contested congressional races?
5: I mean, it's tough to say. I'll say just, you know, from my personal experience, since we were talking earlier about what it was like for me growing up in New York in a post 9-11 world, you know, the, the foundation of this era in some ways is 9-11 and the wars it created and the, the politics it created. But also, you know, for me as a relatively young person, the, um, the things that have happened during my own like political coming of age have not been things like 9-11, but have been pro- predominantly acts of domestic um, violence and terrorism, like the Capitol insurrection this year or Charlottesville or things like that. Um, <clears throat> so it's sort of, it's tough to know what this new, whether that's going to be the new um, framework as, you know, lots of people my age um, and people who don't have these sort of extremely strong memories of learning how vulnerable American, America can be like we did on 9-11 um, you know, we're forming these different memories, these diff- these yeah. memories that are based around domestic terrorism instead. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's tough to predict exactly what the political consequences for that might be. Um, but historically, you know, um, <clears throat> domestic terrorism has oftentimes been associated with far-right uh, activists, although sometimes it has been associated with far-left people too, but predominantly far-right. Uh, so that could definitely have an impact that way uh, if the main – thing that people are worried about is from the far right that certainly could have a political impact
1: understood understood i've been speaking with joey fox new jersey globe reporter we're still trying to get don DiFrancesco and get through these technical issues but uh, we're going to take a quick break Uh, this is david wildstein the editor of the new jersey globe and you're listening to the new jersey globe power hour on talk radio 77 wabc
4: old-school, classic, punk, indie, 80s, 90s, whatever. If it's got passion and a backbeat, I want to hear it. And I want to know more about the artists who create it. That's why I read Rock and Roll Globe. Rockandrollglobe.com features the sharpest takes about what's good and what's um, not so good in music. They call it real writing about real music. It's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just crisp, Surprising insight into music of all kinds, interviews with performers, concise reviews of hot new records, a look back at that great album that changed everything. It's all on rockandrollglobe.com. Check out Rock and Roll Globe. That's rockandrollglobe.com.
0: The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And While 2020 is over, the impact is not. I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for Mental Health to Change Lives.
3: Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211.
0: NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need. It's for everyone, veterans, seniors, even children.
3: I'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel.
0: And it's not a train, it's help. It's NJ211. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. If you need help, go to nj211.org or dial 211.
4: I always value books and films and good TV, But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. BookandFilmGlobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart Clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes. It's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com.
0: The New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC.
1: Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. I'm, I'm talking to Joey Fox, a, a reporter for the the Globe. Joey, thanks for staying on. Yeah, and no problem. And, and I want to I want to apologize to the listeners. We had expected to have former Governor Don DeFrancesco on. We've we've had some technical issues. Uh, he will not be on the show today. I hope. Uh, I I I hope to exercise a rain check and have him uh, come on at some point because he was an eyewitness to what happened at the World Trade Center 20 years ago today uh, as the governor of New Jersey and and, and I'd like everybody to hear uh, what his observations were. But but Joey, as we we talk about what's what's going on in politics right now in New Jersey, this was a. Uh, there, there was an important development in the race for Congress in the 7th District. Can you can you explain what happened this week?
5: Yeah. So in many ways, it was an important announcement, and in many ways, it was sort of the promise of a future important announcement. Basically, what happened was the House Ethics Committee, which has been looking into uh, Congressman Tom Malinowski, who is from the 7th District, which is a very competitive district, um, announced that it was continuing its inquiry into him. Uh, for um, making a ton of stock trades in 2020 and then not properly disclosing them. Um, So, you know, so there was big news this week in that they were continuing their inquiry. But at the same time, uh, most it it didn't provide any new real information. We already know what Malinowski is potentially in trouble for, uh, which is these stock trades and his uh, his failure to properly disclose them, although he has since uh, put all of his stocks into a blind trust, directed his Stockbroker to not make any more trades, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, his past actions are still under under scrutiny. Um, <clears throat> but the most important thing is that now we have a date where we might know more, which is October 21st. Uh, and at that date, the ethics committee will announce that perhaps it's clearing Malinowski, perhaps it's finding him, perhaps it's expanding its inquiry into investigation. We'll have to see then. Um, but what this means for Malinowski? is that he's got at least another month and a half of uh, potentially uh, being in trouble from the ethics committee and receiving a lot of attacks from the national Republican congressional committee, uh, calling him trading Tom uh, attacking him for this inquiry, et cetera, et cetera. And Tom Malinowski, that's a a primer on it. It it is. And he he
1: barely, uh, he, he, and and I would encourage everybody to read Joey Fox's story on this on the New Jersey globe. Uh, Malinowski won, I mean, it was, it was an extraordinarily close race by, by 1% against Tom Kane Jr., the, the Republican Senate
5: minority leader. Uh, this is even as Joe Biden is winning the district by around 10 points. So right. it's, I mean, it's definitely a significant underperformance even before this stock story broke. So this, this is going to be an issue regardless, I think, of where the Ethics Committee, uh, dis,
1: what they decide to do, won't it?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly what the NRCC is hoping for um because they 've they 've already put a lot of uh investment into this uh image of malinowski as trading Tom as this kind of scurrilous washington insider um and yeah it 's the kind of thing where you know if if Malinowski is found guilty and um you know it 's not a criminal court but you know he 's found to have committed violations and he gets fined then that 's certainly a great attack line for republicans and even if he 's not you know. We in the media might say, well, Malinowski was, was, was clear to this, but the NRCC is unlikely to be so forgiving. They're probably going to keep on hammering this image, uh, regardless of exactly how it comes down. And the backdrop of all this is, is redistricting and, and that, that the
1: events that will take place with this inquiry and the, and the ethics committee, I think they were very clear to, to say that this, this, doesn't, this doesn't reflect on Malinowski yet. It's simply an announcement of their process. Uh, But but it'll it'll be involved in redistricting, I would imagine.
5: Yeah. So so New Jersey is going to have to do some reshuffling of its congressional districts where um, it's two most urban districts. So that's uh, the one based primarily in Newark and then the one based in Hudson County um, are quite overpopulated. And all the rest or almost all the rest are underpopulated or about about even. Uh, So that means that those districts are going to have to shrink. And th- those two overpopulated districts are going to have to shrink and all the others are going to have to make up for that. So we're almost guaranteed to see some fair amount of shuffling in redistricting. And there might also be some partisan shuffling in terms of, you know, there's lots of competitive districts. Some of those might be made safer for one party or another. Sure. And in the event that Malinowski, you know, gets significantly slammed by the ethics committee, the redistricting commission might decide to say, well, look, this guy – is he really worth preserving for us? You know, he's he's got this this bad record. We can make his seat safe Republican and make all of these other North Jersey seats safe Democratic. Well, none of us, none of us know yet what's him. going to happen. But yeah, we, but, we, this is purely hypothetical, I, but just sort of that is one potential conclusion of this. It is. I've been speaking
1: to Joey Fox, reporter for the New Jersey Globe. Thank you for for bailing me out uh, for for a segment. We, we apologize again for Don DeFrancesco. Uh, not being able to make it, uh, but, but everybody, I want I, again. Nine Eleven, hugely solemn day, and 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 all of us will for remember, you know, forever remember the events and the heroism and and the people who were involved. So, so thanks for listening this week. This is David Wildstein, I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you've been listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC.